Zane Velji is a political strategy consultant, board director for Calgary Reads, political pundit seen on CBC, and podcast host of The Strategist, a Canadian political strategy podcast available on thestrategist.ca or on iTunes. We discuss what the role of a strategist is, how they operate as part of a team, and a bit about the nuances between Canadian and United States political system when it comes to strategy. His Twitter handle is at Zane Velji. That's at Z-A-I-N-V-E-L-J-I. Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. describe to like the layman or someone who's not uh, uh, exactly a uh, yeah is super into politics uh what is a strategy what is the job of a strategist and how does the how does the process work of of a campaign hiring one or or yeah well, so in Canadian politics, there's many different pro- – let me start with your second question and then go back to the first. Many different processes in, in how you hire someone. But I think the, the biggest sort of point here is that Canadian politics is done on such a cheap economic cycle that when you hire a campaign strategist, regardless if you're running for mayor or for an MLA or an MP, most of the times these people aren't necessarily paid. Um, they're, they're individuals that volunteer their time. They may get the odd check here or there for a couple of months of work. But for the most part, like most people on the team, they, they aren't necessarily paid in that regard. And I think that's a real reality of Canadian politics. So when you see people who lifelong spend their career in politics, it's, it's really a salutation to them to be able to hustle and figure out a way to collect a couple of checks and make a livelihood. Because unless, unlike our counterparts in the States, most people in Canadian politics do not earn a single paycheck. They are usually volunteers. They care for the cause. They care for what they're doing. They feel like it gives them a sense of reflexive credibility in their other endeavors, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not a job that people get into to become rich. Right. What a, what a campaign strategist does on any level, whether that's someone running to be town councillor or whether that's someone to r- running to be the prime minister of the country, is very simply tell the campaign and construct a pathway as to what we are going to do to win. Um, and this includes everything from saying we need to focus our efforts here, we need to uh, message here, we need to you know, talk to these people in this particular area of the country or the riding with this message, we need to run a town hall here, et cetera, et cetera. They are the individual on the campaign that constructs the pathway for victory. They make the victory possible. They reverse engineer the finish line. They know that the finish line looks like in a three-person race getting 42%. They are the ones constructing a narrative of how to get to 42% in a three-person race. So the campaign strategist really is the person on the team that looks at the very sparse resources and figures out how to reverse engineer the most viable pathway with a little degree of error and still getting there. Uh, as to as to what victory looks like, so that includes the electoral map, that includes the voter count, that includes you know the data, all that sort of stuff is within their hands and their oversight to ensure that what the most readily uh, available pathway is for victory. That's opposed to what many people think that the strategist does, which is the role of the campaign manager, which is effectively uh, yes. mobilizing the team, which is dealing with the candidate day to day, which is you know getting the volunteers together and really talking about the marching orders. If you want to really have a short you know, and simple distinction, the campaign manager says, you know, uh, what we're going to do, and the and the, so the, the strategist says what we're going to do, and the campaign manager says, 
here's how we're going to do it. So if I say we need to mobilize 45% of the people in this particular riding, that's the strategy we need to win. It is then a co-creation effort with the campaign manager to figure out how exactly we we do that, whether that's door knocking, phone calling, on the grounds, digital ads, whatever that looks like. If I know I need 50 or 45% in a particular area to come out for me, it's, it's incumbent then on the campaign manager to figure out obviously with some work with the strategist as to how you get to that number. So hopefully that explains the, the distinction between the two positions, but it's really about the, the individual on the campaign that constructs the pathway to, to what victory looks like. Right, okay. So the, so the strategist is, is, like you said, reverse engineering the pathway. Yes. And the campaign manager is, is saying, okay, well, that you're telling me what we need to do. We're here, here, here's how we're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. If, if I'm telling you that... I need 60% of all women in this election to come out and vote for my candidate or else we lose. Yeah. It's like, okay, I have crunched the numbers. I figured that out. Now I need to help you as a strategist and, 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 a, and a campaign manager. I need to help the campaign manager figure out, okay, what are the tactical ways we actually get there, right? right. And so I would figure out as a strategist what some of the messages are. He, or he or she as a campaign manager would figure out what some of the platforms we target those messages are on and how we mobilize certain groups. So it's a co-creation effort, yeah. but the brunt of the how, the brunt of the tactics are left to the campaign manager for sure. Interesting. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense for me and I think for a lot of people that, that would break it down very, very well. So um, – so, are, is a campaign strategist a statistician? Like, what, what kind of skills do they do they uh, bring to the table? Like, yeah, they're, they're crunching numbers and stuff, for right? sure. So it's it's a combination of skills, and the ones I'd say that are most important. Number one, the ability to synthesize a whole bunch of information and really able to say this is the pathway. I think I think what I'm trying to say there is synthesis and a whole crap load of confidence. I think is one. Number oh. two, uh, the ability to understand messaging and segments is really really important. Who what what message will mobilize people? And a lot of that is is working with your communications director, but a lot of that is just like gut instinct saying, if I need sixty percent of women, to my previous example, to mobilize in a certain area, I need to know what messages gets them there to support my candidate versus not. So a lot of it is around messaging and figuring that out. And finally, it's that whole concept of kind of gluing it all together, understanding and communicating to the to the candidate. What not exactly managing the candidate and not exactly managing the team, but communicating both upwards and saying, this is why our path looks like the way I've drawn it. And also communicating to the rest of the team saying, here's what you're working to, right? The campaign manager gives you more of the micro tasks saying, okay, you need to hit 150 doors tonight when you go out and door knock John, volunteer John. It's incumbent on the strategist to say, okay, here's what you've done. By each of you knocking on 150 doors, you have made this dent. Why are we trying to make this type of dent? It's because we need to mobilize this type of support from the area that you are going into. Right. So it's they're really the person that glues it all together. They're kind of the motivator for the rest of the team on a high level. And they really are the one that has the master plan um, in saying – your efforts are contributing to this aggregated goal, and this aggregated goal ultimately means our candidate wins. So those are the real things that, that the strategist really needs to have. And I think the last one I'd add is the X factor of political intuition, right? Ah, yes. Really understanding, you know, if, if someone gives you a left hook, do you duck or do you go in with your own punch? If someone is, you know, kind of dipping and diving, how do you kind of move around that? How do you deal with current situations uh, if your candidate gets thrown under the bus by their by their uh, by like, you know, the leading candidate or, or if there's a way to catch up to a certain amount, like how do you deal with those crisis situations? Those also fall generally first on the desk of, of the strategist because 
any response that you have in a situation that's fluid, such as a crisis, or let's say the leader of your party threw you under the bus, or you've got some viewpoints that may have, you may have discovered that are in contention with the leader, et cetera, et cetera, those generally fall to the strategists because they're the ones who have to do not only the quantifiable calculation yeah. to figure out what the pathway looks like with that change in mind, but also the more X-factor qualitative uh, intuition style combination being like, okay, the data doesn't tell me this, but I still think if we keep going down this path, that's still our best path to victory. Interesting, right. So that intuition is is such an interesting uh piece of the puzzle because when you think of a, a say a, a stats guy or a scientist who's who is crunching numbers and uh figuring things out they typically would keep their intuition aside because of the sort of human error aspect of of science and they would just look at the numbers whereas the the strategist is is yeah there's a whole other skill there where are you involving th- like things from the news things from your your just history like every just kind of knowledge there is about politics to to do that there's a lot of historical knowledge that you apply to your situations at hand, but I think what I mean by intuition is, is I'm not saying you ignore the data. I'm saying sometimes the data may tell you to do one thing and you need to make a judgment call on if the data is right because you can slice the dice numbers anyway to give you the result that you want on paper. But a lot of it is like, okay, how do we respond to this crisis? We don't have time, right? We don't have time if something happens in a political campaign that can ultimately affect the outcome. You do not have time to say, okay, Let's put a pause on that. I'm going to go find out how the voters are reacting, right? It's about saying, okay, we have this situation to deal with. Do I double down on this situation or do I apologize? Let's say it's, it's a situation where some unsavory facts about a candidate have come out during an election. Do I double down and say, no, I still deeply believe that and here's why, or do I apologize, right? We don't have time in, in a 24-hour news cycle where people are expecting a response, let's say, in 60 minutes yes. to go poll the field, right? That's what I mean by intuition. It's looking at past historical lessons. It's looking at you know, the flavor of your electorate. Who do you need to mobilize by apologizing? Am I actually just you know, looking weak by doubling down? Am I actually solidifying my base? It's these sort of questions we ask ourselves that really have a data component but not a hard data component where we need to make some of these – uh, let's say less quantifiable decisions. Right. So I think what's so interesting for a lot of uh, a lot of young people, especially who don't understand the system that well, there's a lot of. Um, I mean, you, t- you take conspiracy theories or, or, or just the the feeling that politicians are either evil or trying to pull one over on you, and they kind of lump in the different staff that 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 uh, are part of a political party with that. Like they say, you know, they might even say uh, that a political strategist could be trying to pull one over on you which in some sense is kind of part of their job but not for that actual motive do you know what i mean i I do i think it's interesting and i think campaigns are in a very interesting spot right now and i think the way we would put it as strategists is it's less about trying to manipulate the voter into thinking what i want them to think which i think is the is the negative rap that that, that strategists get versus me being really good at my job and figuring out what you already believe and yeah. telling you that, right? Yeah. And those are nuanced differences. Like I understand that's like someone might be listening to me like that's almost exactly the same. But the nuanced difference there is is I'm not downloading what I believe to you. I'm trying to find out what's important to you yes. and saying what I do or what my candidate does or what my candidate believes in actually aligns to that, right? So it's it's less about me trying to manipulate and frankly it's more about me trying to research 
what you're, what's important to you. And I think that's the nuance that campaigns are facing right now. And you'll see that if you can really dig down to some of the campaigns as to why they succeed and why they fail, the ones that generally fail try to download, let's say, one top-line message and try to make it fit into your worldview. And that doesn't work as well as me figuring out what works for you and figuring out what component of me or my candidate or my campaign actually aligns to that viewpoint, right? Right. So is that mobilizing? Is that what they say when they say you're mobilizing a voter? Is that getting no, you... Yeah. So what I would say is that there's many different, many different sort of rungs to a ladder. So I'd like to your audience to think of elections as a rung, right? So there's, there's multiple re- la- like steps in a, in a step ladder that you need to take before you get to the top, right? Mm-hmm. So the first one for us in a political campaign is, is a very simple zero or one question. Are you a voter? And if you are a voter, that's one rung on the ladder. The second question is, do you support the general views of my candidate? Zero or one question, binary, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a yes, perfect. You are someone who votes and you're someone who's on our side. You go into this bucket. Now, if the question is you do not support our candidate, there's a tree there. Think of it as two separate branches. Are you... Are you supporting someone else or are you undecided? If you're undecided, I'm putting you into a second bucket, okay? If you support someone else and that someone else's vote is very, very sticky, which means that they're very, very grounded, you're not going to move from them, I frankly am just going to ignore you, right? Good luck to you. I hope you vote. I hope you get out. But it's worth (laughs) zero of my time to focus any of my efforts on you, like none whatsoever, because – You've made your decision. It's that guy. He's got a grasp on you psychologically that I'm never going to be able to get. So bon voyage, right? Like I'm done with you. Yeah. So I've got two buckets now, right? I've got I've got the first bucket, which is you vote and you're on my side. I've got a second bucket, which says you vote and you're undecided. Okay. There's a very different strategy I focus to that s- second bucket than I do that first bucket. Okay. Both in terms of what messages I need to give them because to one I just need to get them to a point where they show up on election day, right? right. That first bucket, they love me and they're going to vote. I just need to make sure they, sh- they just show up. Yeah. The second one, I've got a two-step problem now. I need to make them climb two rungs on a ladder. The first rung is how do I convince them that my candidate is the guy or the, or the, or the girl that they need to vote for? That's step one. And that's a combination of various different tactics that we talk through with the campaign manager. Yeah. Step two is I then need to get you out to vote. Then as soon as you say, okay, I'm with you, I put you into that first bucket and the tactics I apply to you are mobilization tactics. So when you ask what mobilization is, it's the top rung of that ladder. There's many different things I need to figure out about you as a voter before I'm able to mobilize you. And there are very different pathways depending on what you believe. So, for example, let's go back to our initial question, which was, do you vote or do you not vote? This is now the classic question in politics. The people that say that they do not vote, okay, and are still supportive of your ideology, how much time do you spend on them? Yeah. And this seems to be one of the biggest questions right now, right? Every single campaign, you'll see this, right? So let's say 60% of, of your electorate votes, whether this is a, a federal election, a municipal election, a provincial election, 60% of the people vote. That means 40% do not. That's a sizable amount of people, right? Yeah. So what I, I talk to campaign strategists and they see, they see opportunity. I see opportunity in their eyes, right? Because they're like, well, listen, there's 40% of people that don't vote. Even if I get half of that, and I find the half that are supportive of me, I can then mobilize them. And this is a game changer. Like I totally blow the math out of the water. Right. And right. that's a classic question right now. And it's, it's one that we, we struggle with because we see some campaigns where some people put all of their attention on that 40% and say, I'm going to make you a voter. And then I'm going to make you my voter. And then I'm going to mobilize you. And other people say, well, the path of least resistance is you're a voter. 
are you my voter? I'm going to mobilize you. Right. And it's a very different strategy depending on the campaign that you want to run, right? So when we sit down and we figure out who your candidate is, how many people are in an election, what the numbers look like, what the gamification looks like, these are some of the questions we take into mind saying, okay, if we mobilize all voters and get 60% of the game over, we're done. Other campaigns, because the campaigns are so competitive, it's a five-person race, we're like, okay, we need to convert some of the non-voters. That's an entirely different document. That's an entirely different strategy. That's almost sometimes an entirely different team to say, let's go find the 40% and let's play a long game with them. To, today, we're not giving them even campaign literature about our candidate. Today, we're talking to them about the importance and their civic responsibility of voting, right? Yeah. So it's a very different strategy based on what we look like. So to your original question, and I know I'm going long on this, so I apologize. That's fine. But I, I want to give people the context. Your original question mobilization is the top rung of a ladder and there are many different splintering rungs depending on what you're trying to do in a campaign and who you're trying to get before you actually get to the step of mobilizing which is a a political you know jargon word for saying get out and put an x on a ballot right okay okay yeah and that that middle basket was just this the swing voter is what we were yeah, discussing. It's, yeah but it's the swing voter that already has a proclivity to vote right uh, there's yeah. also the other group which is they don't vote but they also could be undecided right that's yeah. let's say it's a 60 40 and generally most of our elections that's the split right 60 percent of people come out 40 percent don't sometimes it's the opposite but approximately there plus or minus 10 points so there's also the other group, which we haven't even considered in this example that I gave you, which is the undecided people who don't vote. Now, that's kind of a paradox because <laughs> are undecided because they don't vote or they uh, which 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 is chicken, which is egg. Right. But there's also these other mental games that you can play with yourself saying, how do I find those people? How do I get them to vote, become voters? Because if I can become make them be a voter, then can I make them become my voter? That's a two step process rather than finding someone who votes you're already done step one and then you need to convert them to yourself right so it's yeah. it's a very and a lot of times campaigns struggle on this right they try to go to someone who doesn't vote who's undecided on them and say vote for me and they're like whoa that's a big ask right take me to dinner first yeah right? i don't yeah One of those situations where it's like wait i'm not even i'm not even you know fluid or dynamic or even like tactical with this political voting process you call it. now he asked me to vote for your guy yeah. that's that's two leaps that's too too many leaps for me so it's really about targeting your strategy to people in a way that allows them that allows the ask and the messaging to be so bespoke and 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 uh, motivated to where they are both psychologically and as a voter or non-voter okay so like i have a more general question it makes sure. me think about people who don't vote and how can we as a country or just people in general in this in 2016, how do we bridge the gap between the everyday complaints that citizens seem to have about their taxes and their, their jobs and this and that with the sort of apathy to the political system and the just lack of, uh, of, of connection to or, or the disdain for the whole process itself and people who don't vote? Because it yeah. seems to be there's a, there's a dichotomy there that, that people haven't resolved. Well, I, I got two answers for you, and one's a rant and the other one's a recommendation. Go let, me go with the, let me go for the rant first. I think where politics really, really struggles right now is with the voter today who has everything in their life absolutely customized to who they are. And I think that's where politics struggles. Let me explain. People today can get a version of everything that is absolutely aligned to who they are. Their social network, 
the what they view on their Facebook feed, to the type of phone they have, to the type of clothes they wear. Everything about people today is bespoke, right? It's like exactly tailored to who they are and what they want to be. If you want to eat a certain way, there's that type of food available. If you want to dress a certain way, there's that type of clothing. If you want to do X, there's, there is your community. There is your people. There is your X, Y, and Z. It's all available to you so that your ultimate identity can be microcosms of small little things you believe in, which are the aggregate of who you are. Why do I say this? I say this because politics, frankly, is not that. Politics is a multiple choice, you know, exam. It's not a fill in the blanks. And I think what we're used to right now as society in general is a fill in the blank society, right? Mm. You want to be something, you can be the absolute perfect aligned version of that. And I think what that, 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 that incongruence with politics is, is people look at it and they say, well, I like one, but it's not exact to what I believe, right? They disagree with me on this minor nuance or on this minor fringe or this whatever. And I'm not saying this is a generational thing. I'm thinking it's a societal thing regardless of generation. We are used to having things so perfectly aligned to what we do and who we are that when we look at politics, and even if it's off on the nuances or on the fringes, and we say, nah, that's not for me, and we disengage. So that's my rant. I think the issue with politics and the issue with people is that they have been pampered and coddled by having everything be so customized and aligned that when they look at their political parties, of which in Canada, let's say we have four major ones nationally, you look at them and you're like, none of these fit me perfectly. Well, of course they don't. That's not what they're supposed to be. They're not supposed to be a mirror representation of your unique snowflake. You know, That's not what these are. These are supposed to be these are supposed to be four stakes in the ground where if you largely believe in what they stand for, you join the movement and try to shape it closer, not perfectly, but closer to what you believe in. And I think that's been the general premise of democracy and politics. So I think one of the reasons why people disengage is that bespokeness. What can we do to align it more? I think that's incumbent on both the voter and the political party. This goes back to what I said before. It's really not about me downloading to you what I think might be important to you that my political party represents or my candidate represents. It's me doing a much better job listening to what you care about. And what I mean by that is not just you telling me what you care about, but what you actually genuinely care about. And you'll find a lot of times that people don't give a crap about the political process. They may actually just care for the community that comes with it, right? They may just care for some of the byproducts that politics produces rather than some of the direct results that politics produces. Let me give you an analogous example. CrossFit, spin studios, $200, $250, $300 a month. Insanely expensive. (laughs) Insanely expensive if all they were selling you was just exercise. But what are they actually trying to sell you? If you, if I go ask the CEO of SoulCycle tomorrow what she's selling you, I know the answer. She's selling you community. Oh. And for $300 a month, you would rather buy community rather than spending $300 a month on fitness. No one's going to spend $350 a month on fitness. But if you are selling something very, very different and tailored to what people between 25 and 40 are looking for, which is a sense of belonging, which is a sense of reflexive identity, which is a sense of saying, holy crap, there's a whole bunch of attractive athletic people here. I need to fit into that group, or me being here lets me fit into that group. That is what you're selling. You're selling that. And I think what politics doesn't do, and I think this is a classic sort of marketing answer for you, Uh is we start selling the features, we don't sell the benefits well. 
We don't sell the benefits of engagement. We start selling the features of you will get you will get this policy put in place. You will get this put in place. And for you, this means that. And we don't actually deal with the nuanced psychology of where people's minds are at as ah. to what they want when they put an X on the ballot. Have I solved this? No. Have my colleagues on the show solved this? No. But I think it's one of the things we're, we're cognizant of as it relates to, you know, you know, just as you go and buy a product, Derek, whatever that looks like, we're very cognizant of what you're actually buying, right? When you go buy an iPhone, are you buying a, a piece of well-designed aluminum and plastic and glass for $900 or are you buying a sense of place in society? And I think we need to start figuring out in politics what an X also looks like. Are you purchasing and, and marking your way towards an identity piece? Does this mean more than to, to you than just the policies and the features? I think that's that's incumbent on, on on politics to figure out. So once again, a long answer, but hopefully hopefully some substance there that that that, that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. I mean that that made a lot of sense for me just explaining the features versus the benefits. So like the benefits would be an ideological community that might be one of the benefits. Is that what totally. you're getting out? Yeah, totally. An ideological benefit. It may be people who who be, people who like to live your lifestyle vote this way. Right. Right. It might be saying something as simple as you know. People who care about the fellow people who care about the environment believe in such causes. Drawing the congruences of what I value, right? As as Susie sitting at home, thirty years old with two kids, uh, a part time worker, you know, just about to enter the workforce. The the notion of political involvement means very something very very different to me as Susie than it does to John, sixty five years old, about to retire, hard nosed, you know, social conservative, right? Those yeah. are very different things. And just like political parties like to tether their messaging to what their motivations of people might be based on the research, we need to now take that one step up and say, how does voting get into that process, right? right. And this is go- goes back to that same, same example, right? If you've got the zero and the one, the people who are not voters, this is that first step. The people that are not voters, it, you would give them a very different message than the people who are voters. Let's yeah. break that tree down even more. Why are they not a voter? Do they not vote because it's not convenient? Do they not vote before, because it's, it doesn't represent anything? Do they, does it not feel? We need to figure that out and then play to what they they really care about. Right. So the so the features that they're selling are policies essentially. Yeah, but, I mean, just like just yeah. like me telling you, like, listen, uh, join a Shutterstock account for for nine dollars a month. Uh, you're going to get access to. 32,000 pictures you can download and it'll, you know, and you'll have like an access to this, this and this. That's features. Benefits is saying people who work in design use Shutterstock Ah, because, because they use Shutterstock because it's the most premier version. It's seamless and we have the most, you know, poignant imagery available, right? right? Now I'm telling you the benefits, right? I'm telling you the benefits to me that matter to me as a designer. I'm not telling you that I get access to this library. That's a feature versus benefit. It's nuanced if you don't get it, but it's a, it's a classic sort of marketing struggle that many even Fortune 500 companies make a mistake on when they try to, um, when they try to speak to political situations or even uh, commercial situations. So we're saying maybe we could get people a little more in line with the process and, and if the political parties and campaigns focused on that psychological aspect of people wanting to belong to this community and didn't try to sell them so hard on the policies. But the policies are important though, right? And isn't that – They are important and, and for many people that's what it is, right? But it's all about saying what about the policy matters to you. Saying that you've got a universal childcare benefit is great but that's a feature, that's a feature. What is the benefit? The right. benefit could very could very easily not even be tied towards kids, right? If I'm if I'm Susie once again, 
32, living at home, about to enter the workforce, and I've got two kids, the benefits of a universal childcare uh, sort of subsidy are profoundly different. Maybe this is extra pocket money to take my kids somewhere. Maybe this is extra extra, extra gas money. Maybe the benefit is is a psychological social one, right? Right, right. So a lot of times we're selling we're selling the policy and saying you interpret what this means for you rather than saying, hey, listen, Susie. By the way, I'm going to whisper in your ear and let you know that if this goes through for your family, what that could mean based on what we know about and what you've said is that could mean an extra week that you guys could take. Uh, to relax as a couple, because we know that having kids was really difficult. Now, I'm not saying you get that intimate. I'm making a, yeah, yeah. a point. I'm making a point here hyperbolically yeah. uh, to, to make that point. But it's really about saying the benefits of that are so sizably different than what the feature is. So don't let people interpret it. Tell them what it is for them, bespoke to their life. Right? Yeah. This is kind of random, but I just thought of of the connection, the the sort of job that a, that a leader of a of a political party has, and and the the disconnect uh, between them and their presentation of the party's platform, and the people behind the staff behind, and the volunteers that are telling or suggesting the best ways to get these messages across. Is it so unfortunate sometimes that we have great political parties with great uh, uh, ideas and whatnot that the there's this barrier that people have to the whether it's the charisma or lack thereof of, of a political candidate or the way they say something that rubs people wrong and these everybody misses the the, the greater message and, and and you know real feeling behind these these parties and due to a, a leader or, or or a leader with a lack of leader skills if that makes any sense yeah I mean that disconnect is going to be really interesting and and, and because we are because as a society we have become even less brand loyal, uh, both how we shop commercially yeah. for sure, yeah. but also how we vote, right? And, and uh, these parties are become leader led, right? That's why leadership is so so important because the charisma, the capacity, the leadership style, everything falls incumbent on how well you're a leader, right? Tom Mulcair, I think, suffered through that in their last federal election. Well, that's who I was thinking of when I right, and I, and I kind of sense that in your question, right? Which is, you have a political party that that got that two things happened. Number one, you had a leader who actually didn't know who he was, right? He knew who he was in the legislature or in parliament, which is a fiery, fiery legislator of the opposition, unbelievably effective at asking good questions, holding the government, you know, and. Yeah, yeah. He was great. He was great. He knew who he was. And then his campaign probably said, well, we need to figure out who you actually are for the campaign because you need to become more palatable, right, for the general public. So he was going through this identity crisis in real time. Uh And simultaneously, you have this party that got outflanked by the liberals on policy. So you had two things happen where Tom Mulcair was trying to discover who he was as a leader. And despite the fact that his credentials, let's just say objectively on paper, uh, outshine Justin Trudeau's. It didn't matter because we were leader led, right? We were right. leader led. We were looking at the top of the ticket and we were looking at our current psychology at that time, which was a ballot box question saying, what does it actually mean to be Canadian? Stephen Harper threw himself into a position where he said, okay, I'm fine making this a, an election on values. And the ballot box question, which is a question that people have in their mind when they go to the ballot box was, what does it mean to be Canadian? Yeah. The answer to that question was more Justin Trudeau than Tom Mulcair for people because right. we were so leader-led at the top. So it is really interesting what leaders mean. I mean, leaders help doing a few things. They, they obviously help mobilize the base, but they also help set policy and priorities. They're your pitch man, right? And we, yeah. as in the Canadian system, are becoming ever so more um, both vulnerable and um, 
ever so driven by by the top of the ticket. Yeah, well, that's so interesting to me because if when I ask a lot of my peers, I mean, I'm 28 and uh, you know I'm here in the Niagara region. I mean, a lot of people I know that voted liberal. I mean, I swear, if you ask them why they voted, they would just say because he's young, vibrant, hip, the marijuana thing. You know, yeah, a lot, not a lot yeah. of people are into the actual policies, or, or they they don't know his voting record and 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 whatnot. It's, it's no, not- and I, and I think if you'd ask them that question, you know, when they give you that answer, if the question was, you know, ask them to recall, even even people who are listening right now, recall what the question you asked yourself when you were in the ballot box was. <laughs> When you marked Justin Trudeau or Tom Mulcair or Stephen Harper or Elizabeth May, what was the question you had in mind that you were answering and you said the answer to that question has to be one of these? I will not guarantee, but I'll say with pretty certain confidence that for most of you, the narrative of the last two weeks of that election, which was about you know barbaric cultural practices, the, yeah. the, the niqab, what it means to be Canadian, all these sort of things – affected how you voted and to have someone like justin trudeau young hip ultra proud of his country open to diversity etc etc i think that contributed to people's answer a lot more than they actually think it did and i think it's and and i think that's what campaigns try to do right is is i think justin trudeau and the liberals uh, frankly lucked into the question and they turned out to be the answer because if you remember a month the month away they were like 12 points down if not more right uh but if you have the ability, if you can be the answer to the question that people are asking, you find yourself in a fortuitous position. And when I say you, I mean specifically the leader. When people were marking the X on the ballot for Justin Trudeau and the question was, what does it mean to be Canadian? I'll say nine out of ten people were not considering how deep his bench were, was, right? Mm-hmm. They were saying, okay, who, as in the leader, is actually commensurate to the answer to that question of saying, who is the most sort of representative of the Canada I want to know? Did it help that he had a very strong bench that he recruited early with very qualified people? Sure, of course it did. Yeah, yeah. But the top line question of leadership, that was the answer to people's question, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It's, it's just so interesting to kind of dissect and especially me as a young person to kind of just ask you know, other young people their, their, their reasons. And it's, it's just funny what you find. It it's, it's just seems like well, a lot of us should be paying attention more to pol- the policy side and the, the, the way that candidates vote and, and – yeah, like what's really behind all their – the way they speak and the, the rhetoric and all that. It's not a lot of people go very deep with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's targeted. I think you'll have moments where it's like it's genuine. I think the main thing right now in politics, the newest thing – not the newest thing. I shouldn't say this is is you want to ensure that your message is is – is not necessarily universal, but like it, it ensures that it targets different areas differently, but it does not contradict itself. And I think that's the big thing is that your campaign may have a large narrative. You want to ensure you have that large narrative that carries through. But how do you do it in a way that you can target the, the motivations of people in a particular way without contradicting yourself, whether it's between two groups or one area of the country versus another? So I think that's the main sort of um, the lesson that that campaigners and strategists and candidates take as they start constructing their their story and their narrative. Right now, can you tell me what's the difference between a campaign strategy and just everyday political strategy when when an election is not going on? What are the differences there, or or are there? Not really. I think we've entered a, a cycle where we've entered a cycle where you know the ongoing campaign is now the reality and, and it's not the anomaly. It's, it's the norm, right? So mm-hmm. even the liberals right now, as they're in government federally, they've got an ongoing campaign, right? They have in-house polling. They have in-house advertising. Right, they have right, in-house right. all of this. So this is a thing where you are doing it. The only thing that changes is your timeline. 
And what that allows you to do is it, it, it allows you to put stuff in a perspective where you don't have to peak after 28 days, right? In a campaign, your whole goal is to set the question, the narrative, the message so that on day 28, 29, which is election day, you are at your absolute peak, right? Yeah. An ongoing campaign is like a series of multiple campaigns where you want to peak for different cycles, but you also understand that you're going to take a hit. Just as long as you're running your campaign in a way that allows you to peak in four years to your ultimate number, that's what you're running for, right? Yeah, yeah. So you may want to peak on certain popularity goals so you can pass certain pieces of legislation. Even though you've got a majority in government, it would be nice to be popular at a certain point so that on contentious pieces, you know, the public is still behind you. Let's just say electoral reform or marijuana. Yeah, yeah. The liberals still have an inherent value in being popular while they're there, while yeah. they pass these things. Could, do they, could they be 10% in the polls and still pass them? Of course they could. Right. The legalities of government allow them to. But they need to actually peak for some of those pieces of legislation. So the ongoing campaign is a longer horizon with many peaks and many troughs. But the ultimate peak is still on Election Day of of next election. Right. So so like when uh, just uh, when Trudeau announced, I think it was on 420 that he said in one year, the actual law is going to go through to for the legalization. Now. I might maybe I'm incorrect in that fact. I, for, I forget exactly, but would something like that, the timing of it, that is a strategist's uh, uh, suggestion. Totally. Yeah. Oh, totally. Both on timing. Also, they're looking at the runway. They're saying, okay, like so. And I also don't know if that's if that's what he said, but let's just assume it is because it's irrelevant to to us talking about it, right? Sure. Yeah. Let's just say he's looking at 420 of next year. What he needs to do, and what his team needs to do, is they not only need to say, okay, that's going to be a great, you know novelty date to have it announced, et cetera. But they need to figure out who they can actually get behind them to support that cause, right? So they're mobilizing supporters. They're mobilizing stakeholders. They're ensuring that not only are they using equity to do this, right, because they're going to take a hit by some audiences that care about them to do this piece of legislation, but what can they gain by doing it as well, right? Who will they also get on side? So they're looking, they're going to look from you know, from now on as to what the backdrop of that announcement looks like, what other stakeholders are at the table, is there going to be two or three big venture capitalists at the table saying, we are now investing in Canada because we're legalizing it, right? And and we want to ensure that we create the best uh, legalized marijuana in the country. Are there going to be health groups beside them? Who are they going to try to mobilize as stakeholders? Very similar to what you do in the campaign. You go meet with the doctors association, you go meet with the unions, you go do whatever. This for a very different reason, because they're trying to mobilize them today, have them in front of the camera and say, this is going to be a net positive to our economy, to our healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to our prison system. They are trying to mobilize, reverse engineer from that date, what that looks like. And then from that date onward, how do they keep those people at bay? And more importantly, how do they keep those people as influencers and as continuous supporters for the ultimate peak? Right. Now, you mentioned the volunteer aspect of Canadian uh, politics in Canada. Now, is that one of the is that the biggest difference between strategists in uh, work in in the United States and Canada, or what are other nuances that between the two systems that, that um, I think I think compensation is one. I think the other nuances is just their political cycle, right? So uh, a lot of times you'll have um, just a lot more frequency in, in in how many times the campaigns are run. I think that's a big one. Um, size of team, size of electorate, that's also huge. Uh, size yeah. of size of even budget, right? Like, so r- forget the fact that we don't get paid. Our budgets are about like one tenth the size, if not one twentieth the size of the, the commensurate or the congruent election that the U.S. is running. Yeah. Um, the 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 big one, the massive massive one, is we don't we do we do. We do a micro fraction of TV, 
And in the U.S., the way that many strategists and campaign managers still get paid is a percentage of the TV ad buy. What I mean by that is, let's say they spend $10 million on TV, 2% of that is the compensation that a campaign manager will get on a Senate race or a national race. So it's that, we, do barely, we do barely any television as compared to the U.S. on most levels, even our federal one. So those are some of the, the other nuances. And then the, the last one that I'll add, which is a, an insider baseball one, is our, um, is our access to data. We don't have a voter file here, right? We, I, I can't call on someone and say, tell me all the Democrats in a particular area or tell me all the progressive people here. We don't have like a registered national database, which, oh, right. makes our, okay. which makes our access to information a lot. I mean, we have stringent, much more stringent access to information regardless, but it makes actioning that a lot more difficult as well. So I think that's the last one, which means we get to, uh, you know, we don't get to deploy as targeted asks digitally or on the ground or with direct mail, et cetera. So there is some nuances in in uh, in the overall way that we as strategists run both north and south. Right, That's so interesting. Well, uh, I wanted to finish up maybe just on some uh, American stuff. Were the strategists in the states pulling their hair out by now, or what? Um, I think some <laughs> of them are. I mean, you look at the ones on the on the on the uh, the Democrat side, and they're just like ensuring there's another there's not another shoe to drop on the on the email front or on the security leak front. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the guys on the Republican side, and you know myself and my colleague Stephen Carter were in Chicago for a campaign conference just last month, and over there they're trying to do something which is I mean not not necessarily unique to us here because we do it a lot more than they do there, but distance themselves from the guy at the top of the ticket, right? That's what every single, not every single, that's what a lot of Republicans are trying to do is uh, how to position themselves as not being a Trump Republican, but being a Republican Republican, right? Yeah. And there's there's new words that are starting to el- enter the American... The alt-right politi- and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah, the political zeitgeist in the U.S. has a lot more new verbiage and vernacular that's starting to enter for the sole purpose of creating these differentiations of saying, listen, I've been your senator for, for 20 years. Just because you hate Trump doesn't mean you vote me out. Or I've been a good congressman to this place and I've yeah. been a strong fiscal conservative. Doesn't mean I'm a you know freaking Looney Tune uh, like the guy at the top of the ticket. So we're starting to see more aggressive, more vocal, less nuanced uh, separation from, from people at, who are uh, two, three, four layers down the ticket. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it's such a crazy, obviously, it's, it's just so crazy. It's great to listen to you guys on The Strategist talk about it. I, I know sometimes you guys don't touch on the U.S. stuff because you just stick it just more to Alberta stuff or Canada-wide. Yeah, uh, we try to keep a mix. I mean, we'll hit, an, we'll hit an American episode shortly again. But, yeah, I mean, we've got a, we've got a lot of different sandboxes that we like to play, <laughs> which means that every, any given week, I think two-thirds of the people are unhappy with the topic we're talking about. But it's just the nature of, uh, it's just the nature of it, right? Totally. I mean, you only have so much time to cover so much stuff that happens on a on the day-to-day basis kind of thing yeah so, so great man well thanks for talking to me and that, uh, hopefully that uh enlightens some people to kind of get into the the back end of politics a little bit and see kind of how it really works and, and who who decides what and who who makes what moves and all that awesome no i'm happy to derek and if people want to listen to the podcast it's at the strategist.ca there's all the links and stuff so they can subscribe and such but yeah um thanks for having me and Thanks for listening, and I'm happy to do this. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot, Zane. Thanks, Derek. Hey, listeners of the Strategist Podcast, Zane Velji here. It is true. The podcast is done. Our good friend Corey Hogan is now going to be the new managing director of the Public Affairs Bureau here in the province of Alberta. 
Should we have tried to replace him? Sure, I have tried many times, but honestly, it was the three of us, and that's how it should end. So, Corey, congratulations. It's going to be an amazing gig for you. You're going to do awesome. To all the fans who listen, thank you so much. It's meant a lot. Future collaborations on the way, I'm sure. But in the meantime, congrats, Hogan, and thanks to all who listen. We will see you soon.